0: Okay, so it's now 8 o'clock and there's still some more people coming in. This is not like going to the airport and if you're 30 seconds late, you can't get on the flight. We practice kindness here. Another you know the word for kindness? One of the words for it is karuna. And so we spread coronavirus in this, <laughs> which we said that the antidote to coronavirus. corona virus. <laughs> Anyways, any more people coming in? That's it, it? Okay. So for anybody who did get COVID, I always say, you know, you must always be positive and the best blood type be positive. But there's always exceptions. And that's when you take COVID tests be negative. (laughs) And there is a lot to be said about having a happy state of mind of just. having a positive state of mind, because that happiness does increase, you know, your um, strength of your immune system. It's been tested, it's well known, but no one hardly practices it. So please remember here, all the advantages if you do test positive. What are the advantages of testing positive to the Covid test? you get served, you don't have any chores to do, and if you're still positive on Sunday, you can stay a few extra days. Isn't that positive? Yeah. I really felt I missed out, never testing positive to COVID. A few of the other monks tested positive, and they were staying here, being looked after, having nothing to do. (laughs) And I thought, oh crikey, I need to get Covid. (laughs) But nice thing to do is when you always see something positive in what's happening to you uh, instead of testing, then you can always just have a higher state of mind and you find whatever affects you doesn't affect you that badly. And there's always advantages of being sick, as I said, even going to hospital. If you've ever been in a hospital, some of these hospitals are wonderful places to stay in. The only negative part of a hospital, to get in, you have to be sick. If it wasn't for that, I go to hospital regularly. It's restful, no one bothers you, and you can really relax all day. And no one ever... The last time I went to hospital, to let you know if I haven't told a story already this time, that, what was it? That was almost 28, 28? 38 years ago. Yeah, 37 years ago. And for some reason coming here, I got really exhausted. There was no COVID around in those days. I got so exhausted. And one of the doctors who came here, a Sri Lankan gentleman, he said, well look, I'm not quite sure you know, what you've got, but let us take you into his hospital where he was a consultant. I'll take you into this hospital, I'll make sure you're admitted, so we can do some tests on you. It was our local hospital in Rockingham, not a big hospital, but it still had all the facilities there. So I went to check in at the hospital, and as soon as I signed my name, yeah, you're expected, and they said, where's your pyjamas? That was the first question they asked. I said, I'm a monk, I don't have pyjamas. It's either these robes or nothing, take your choice. I said that. Unfortunately, these were, you know, not nice Australian robes. we said, oh, okay, we'll take your, you'd leave the robes on. So I had my robes on in the hospital. And uh, then, in the ward where I was in, with three other gentlemen, that in that ward, they, you always have your name on there, Naja Brahmawangso, and who the doctor is, it was a Dr. Mendes and Dr. Mendes was quite a (laughs) well-known (laughs) gynaecologist. And so all the nurses when they came in said, you look funny with a bald head and brown robes and not pyjamas, but what on earth are you doing under a gynaecologist? I haven't got you in the right ward. But at least that's just fun and joy. That meant a lot to the other people in the ward. It let you be positive. But one of the stupid things we did, I didn't do this because I'd hardly ever been in a hospital. The other people in the ward, you have these stupid conversations. And if ever you're in a hospital, don't ever have this conversation. They had the conversation of what's the worst medical procedure? One of them said, I had this procedure, that was pretty unpleasant, said, oh, that no, was nothing. This is much worse. And then the other one said, no, the very, very worst, I've been in hospital many times, the very worst is a barium enema. And then one, <laughs> one of these poor men in the hospital went white. And that's what I'm having this afternoon. <laughs> a stupid conversation. So instead of that, at least you can always say positive things. Any illness which anybody has, whatever it is, just always see the positive side to it, crack a few jokes and if ever I need any surgery any time, if ever there's any cancer or anything which I have, I say when you go and have surgery, it's also a wonderful opportunity for me to lose weight. Take something out, I'm uh, much lighter. Anyway, uh, that's not what I was supposed to be talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm keeping consistency, I never talk about what I'm supposed to be talking about. But today, I wanted to kind of continue on with what I was saying even last night. I was reading through the suttas last night, or yes, yeah, yesterday afternoon. I wanted to continue about this breath meditation. Okay, so already started off with seeing the positive side of any kind of disabilities or problems which you have. And for me, what I still have now, if you do see me sneezing, you saw me sneezing at the beginning of this retreat, it's not a Covid or a cold, it's hay fever. Because my father had asthma and eventually it killed him. So, you know, I've inherited a. allergy, especially the time when people make hay. That's why it's called hay fever. And if you go down on the way home, if you go down during the, the light period, during the daytime, you'll see that the farmers are making hay down uh, in the fields around here. And the wind at night blows all the pollen to come and irritate me. We don't really mind that much, it's just not a big deal. But it actually helped me once, because when I was first taught meditation, like many of you, I was taught that what meditation is, is to watch the breath at the tip of the nose. That is totally wrong. The Buddha never said that. But that's how I was taught when I began. And because I was taught like that, I tried to watch the breath at the tip of my nose, and during the hay fever season, there was no breath at the tip of my nose. My nose was blocked, and so I thought, well, maybe meditation's not for me. But then, I learned from the Burmese tradition, you can watch the breath at your belly. I thought, "Ah, I can still meditate." The problem was, on these meditation retreats, people keep eight precepts. And I'm, when I started watching the belly area in the afternoon or evening, I was a young man. I felt hungry. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work either. I just had enormous hunger that "Oh. So I thought I'd have to give up meditating. I actually thought that, but then I was smart enough to actually look at the instructions rather than just believe them from whoever taught them, and the in instructions, they never ever said to watch any part of the body when you're doing breath meditation. Never ever did they say to watch the breath at the tip of the nose. This is not nose meditation, it's breath meditation. They never said to watch the belly. This is not belly meditation, this is breath meditation, to watch the breath. And even if I had hay fever, even if my nose was blocked, I was still breathing, I was breathing somewhere. So I could just watch the breath, not the nose, not the belly, not any particular part of the body. And these days when I teach meditation to people who have never meditated before, I start with just asking them a question, give them a test, close your eyes, just watch three in-breaths, three out-breaths. And they do that, easy, everyone does, no one has any problem. And then I asked them, how did you know you were breathing in? How did you know you were breathing out? And they kind of, well, I don't know, but they knew they were breathing in and breathing out. doesn't matter how blocked your nose is, or just how hungry you are in your belly, you can still know you're be- breathing in or breathing out. That experience, that feeling, sensation, which tells you you're breathing in or breathing out, that is what you watch. And you can always do that. And that was a huge uh, help for me. I wouldn't have been able to figure that one out if I could breathe normally like everybody else, didn't have any hay fever, and the nose was always clear, and I could just breathe in and breathe out, like many people. But because I had that little affliction, I turned it into wisdom. How many times have I told you when you tread in the dog poo? Dig it in, don't complain about it. It's fertilizer for your wisdom. For me, my fertilizer was having a blocked nose. And how can I meditate? And from that time on, you've had this amazing experience with people who've had such afflictions. I can't help but talk about that gentleman in Sydney many years ago who came on one of my retreats. When he came on the retreat, he wasn't a Buddhist. You know, He said, I'm on this retreat, not because I'm a Buddhist, I want to uh, get enlightened or anything like that. The only reason I'm on this retreat is to learn meditation because I've got a cancer. Doctors have given up on me. They said there's no more treatments possible. And the cancer was sinus. He had a big tumour and the bridge of his nose and his sinuses. And so he told me that my mistake was I didn't announce that to everybody else, except on the evening of the first day. Because that day when he had this sinus cancer, yes of course he was breathing, otherwise he'd be dead, but he was breathing through his mouth, really heavily. Now, if you were listening to that for (coughs) one whole hour, that would just be really irritating. And that's what happened in the question time, the Q&A, all the questions were about the same. Ajahn Brahm, can you please ask people to breathe quietly during meditation? It's like you know the, the banging the doors in your cottage. Can you please ask people not to bang the doors? This was actually in the meditation hall. Please ask people not to breathe loudly. <laughs> it was irritating them. So actually, when I mentioned the reason for this, the cause that this gentleman had this huge tumor in the bridge of his nose, in the sinuses, no one ever complained after that. It was beautiful that all those retreatants said, oh no, please breathe as loudly as you can. <laughs> when they realised it wasn't sort of any heedlessness on his part, he wasn't doing this on purpose, it was all he could do to keep alive, just people started to change their irritation into kindness. That's the first thing I saw, which was beautiful, no one complained, I said, does it still disturb you? He said, Well, kind of, you know, it's not peaceful, but I know why and how can you ever feel irritated when this person is meditating to try and find a cure for this cancer and save his life? I can't get angry at him at all, but just give him lots of support, which is quite beautiful. The kindness is always part of our path. And anyway, what happened was nothing. (laughs) The end of the retreat, the last interview, he said nothing's happening. I still got my uh, nose blocked by the tumor. But you know, he was diligent in his practice. But as always occurs, the last meditation. <laughs> I don't know what. Actually, I do know why this is. Just like that, Ananda, meditating, meditating all night, and at the very end, he just gave in. He's not going to get enlightened. And that's when he got enlightened. There's still a chance for you yet. <laughs> the last meditation, well, I'm going to go off subject here, but I can't now. but I don't think she minds me telling you this story. There's one of the nuns at Dharmasara. She became a nun, a really good nun. She became a nun after one of the meditation retreats, which I think was organised by the Body United Singapore or BF over in, I think, Kau in those days in Thailand. So she was really diligent meditating, 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 but she also got nowhere. So the end of the retreat, well, she tried. But after the retreat was finished, you know, her taxi to the airport to meet the Aircraft, which would take her back to you know, her home, after the retreat was finished, there was another, at least an hour, before the taxi would come, you know, pre-ordered to take her to the airport to check in and go back home. So she, she said she had an hour to kill. It's a really weird word, uh, killing an hour. But anyway, she's supposed to be keeping the five precepts. You're not supposed to kill anything. <laughs> Anyway, she killed the hour, just went into the the hall and just meditated. This time putting no effort into it. Just sitting down, crossing her legs and just killing an hour. And after the hour was finished, then she came out and I was sitting by a table, I think having a, a cup of tea or an apple juice or something, in the afternoon, and I'll never forget her expression. She was squatting on the floor, I was on a chair, looking up at me. <sighs> oh, <Brahm>. oh, Oh, oh. <laughs> at last, I had a, oh, a really nice, Meditate, oh, so lovely. <laughs> it was really overdone. Actually, but she was overdoing it. I can't say overdoing it, she was just expressing how she felt. For me, I'm probably underestimating what she did. But uh, it was so sweet. The first time she got a really nice deep meditation. Totally unexpected. She was just killing time. Waiting for the <laughs> the taxi to arrive. But I always remember her response. The afterglow. The only thing I can compare it to. If you have a teenage daughter and she comes up to you and says, "Daddy, Daddy, Daddy, oh, I've, I've fallen in love. Oh, I've met my dream boy. Oh, oh." oh. <laughs> I don't know if you th- you can relate to that. But that's actually what it was quite like, you know, she had a nice deep meditation and that's kind of the afterglow. But anyway, this guy over in uh, Sydney, again, the very, very last meditation, we'd already actually finished off most of the retreat and I was in a car about to sort of uh, leave to get to Sydney airport to get my flight back to Perth. I've got many responsibilities. And this guy, guy came running after me. Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahm, wait. He realised that something had happened. And he said, the very last meditation, he'd never been able to breathe through his his nose in months, because the sinus was blocked by this huge tumour. And he said during the the very last meditation that day, and after we formally finished, he heard a popping sound. Pop! And he could breathe through his nose. Now that's just a little story for you, for him, it was mammoth. and The, the, uh, the tumour just then grew again and blocked his nose. He had a minute of being able to breathe through his nose, which he said was amazing. No doctor would ever be able to do that. Meditation could do it. Meditation is very close to medication, but it has the tea, and I'm very into tea. (laughs) That's one of the reasons why I became a disciple of Ajahn Chah what does char mean? (laughs) Of course, (laughs) it means tea. (laughs) So anyway, Um, so he could please through his nose for one minute and I really didn't, I couldn't sort of stay any longer to give him any advice, so I had to go off to the airport and the car was waiting to speed off, so off we went to the airport. And as we drove off, I really thought he'd like left it too late. He should have meditated beforehand. Yes, it shrunk his cancer just for one minute, but you know, that's not going to save your life. So I wrongly thought. Honestly, that's how I thought he'd left it too late. But then six months later, roughly, I was in Sydney again giving a talk at a completely different venue, and this man came up to me. And he said, do you remember me? Please, don't do that to me. The reason I stay there is because I have to be honest. You know, the monk's rules. So a lot of time I say, who the hell are you? And the guy comes up and says, I'm your brother, Tony. we've got the same mother. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) That is an exaggeration. (laughs) Although I must say, (laughs) on that story, I'm going all over the place but I don't think you mind, that my grandmother, uh, she had Alzheimer's, so the last years of her life, she was in one of these uh, homes for sufferers of Alzheimer's. So when I went to UK to give some talks and also visit family, Now my brother and I went to see my grandma. Now my brother is a really good man, he's got to hand it to him, he goes and looks after the grandma at this time, visiting every week, making sure she's got everything she needs, really kind. And so as soon as my brother, his name was Tony, sort of came into the, the ward, and my grandma saw both of us, and my old name was Peter and she looked at me and said, Peter, how are you? Nice to see you. Then she turned to my brother and said, who the heck are you? <laughs> She'd only see me once every three or four years, sees my brother every week. <laughs> he was really upset. <laughs> you brother, you just over in Australia, messing around with Buddhism over there, I come every week. She doesn't remember me, but she <laughs> remembers you first time. <laughs> Anyway, that's just the nature of life. So anyway, this guy said, do you remember me? I said, I don't. Of course, you all know who he was now. He was that guy with the sinus cancer. When you see people really sick and close to death, they look, you know, so different. And I can excuse myself for not remembering him, because now he was in full remission, the cancer, the sinus tumour totally vanished because he just carried on doing what I told him in that retreat over in in Sydney and he said, I had to come here to say thank you. He actually saved somebody's life. He shouldn't have been saved. He should have been in a, in a, in a grave somewhere, but he was fine and he said, don't worry about not recognising me, sometimes I don't recognise me when I look in the mirror. I'm healthy now. I asked him what he was up to and he, he said, I'm going to be teaching what you taught me as much as I can, as long as my life lasts. because It was so valuable. And experiences like that make me feel really soft and warm and give me energy to teach some more. It works. But no, he couldn't breathe through his nose and he still got these nice meditations and cured cancer, his own cancer. Now, for you, you don't have to watch the breath at the tip of the nose. If that's where the breath is, fine. If it's somewhere else, fine. The only thing is you just watch the breath, that's all. So anyway, if you can watch the breath through your right ear lobe, that's a uh, hole, I was meant to say. That's fine too. <laughs> that's not important, the place. But you're noticing the breath, that is important. But it's important, and I would say thank you for having that hay fever, because it taught me just how to watch the breath rather than watch the tip of my nose. And that's really much more helpful. And I say it's much more helpful, because the whole purpose not the whole purpose, but just an important part of this breath meditation, is for you to find a way to move your awareness from your body to your mind. And it's like you're crossing a stream. Now, first of all, you've got the world of the five senses, what many people call their real world, but you know more, it's never that real the world of the five senses, what I said the other day, the prison, got to move from there to get outside into the realm of the mind, get some more perspective. But to do that is not easy because we have so much kind of attachment to the world of the body and the five senses. So the breath is like a stepping stone in the middle of the stream. You are well with the body, where you're aware of the body, and then you step into the middle of the stream where there's a stepping stone, the breath. But it starts off as a body awareness. When you're first aware of the breath, in, out, in, out, and you can feel that as a sensation somewhere. But you don't have to be stuck on that sensation, no, It's whether it's on the body or the belly, Because, number one, that's not so pleasant. Number two, you won't be able to sustain it except through force. And look, I I wasn't always meditating like I teach you now. Many times I would meditate forcefully as a young monk because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And I saw the negative part of that. Watch the breath, okay, watch the breath, don't move. Just watch the breath. Even if you die, just watch the breath. And I would do that and you get more and more tense. And sooner or later you get headache. That's the next part, the next problem about watching the breath at the tip of the nose. For all the time which I was meditating, especially when you learn how to meditate properly, to watch the breath, not the nose, it was always very peaceful and very, very nice. Okay, sometimes you might be tired and fall asleep, not really fall asleep, just get dull, but you never feel that tightness and tension in you. But one of the first times I taught meditation in Malaysia, I was just so shocked when people asked me about meditation headache. I said, when you get headache, when you're meditating, they said, yes. And I said, if I have a headache, I meditate to get rid of the headache, not to get one. I said, what are you doing when you meditate? We focus on the tip of the nose. That's what they said. And I figured it out pretty quickly. I'm going to take my glasses off, keep my eyes open. Look at the, my eyeballs. When I focus on the tip of my nose, even when I just focus with my mind, my eyes follow. You go cross-eyed. <laughs> and if you get people meditating on the tip of their nose, even their eyes are shut, if you could peel their, their eyelids up, you find the eyeballs are also focused on the tip of the nose as well. Anyone will get a headache. If you just strain your eyeballs on the tip of the nose, you get a headache across here. And when I taught that, <laughs> ah, at last, such a simple solution, but it works. They don't, if you do the, the belly, it's you know, not so cross eyed, but it's still just forcing the eyeballs. It will give you stress in your facial muscles. So, You don't need to do that. In fact, it's better not to do that. It's better to let go of the body awareness at this stage as soon as you can. You do the body awareness at the beginning, then the breath, the physical breath first of all. You Know the breath going in, you know the breath going out, you know the whole breath. And what happens, I never uh, mentioned this yesterday. When you notice the whole breath from the beginning to the end, we've got a simile which is in the Visuddhimagga But I really like the simile because it's just what happens when I meditate. They say it's like sawing a piece of wood. If you've sawed a piece of wood, a piece of wood is there. This is the saw. You can see, you know, from the beginning of the the, uh, moving the saw one way, right from the beginning to the very end, from the end to the beginning, as you saw it backwards and forwards. But after a while, as you focus in, all you see is that little piece of a uh, little part of the wood, the little section of the wood where the saw blade is is touching it. The piece of wood to the left, the piece of wood to the right, you don't notice. It's just this bit of wood now where the saw blade is touching it. And the other thing you notice is as you focus in on where you're cutting the wood you can't see the beginning of the saw. You can't see the end of the saw. As you zoom in, all you see is a two or three teeth of the saw in contact with the wood. It's called like focusing. And so after a while, you really don't know whether this is the beginning of an in-breath, the middle of an in-breath, the end of an in-breath. It looks the same. Great. All you see is just a like breath in motion and even the in-breath and the out-breath when you don't know the beginning of the in-breath or the beginning of the out-breath or the end of it because you're focusing on what's happening right now, you find that even that looks the same. You see the whole of the breath. Just in the moment, this moment of breath, and it doesn't sort of it looks like it's always the same. And that is important for meditation, when every moment you're watching the breath is pretty much the same. Because what happens then, the physical perception of the breath vanishes. That's where you get the delight associated with it, starting to come up and become strong. And to tell you, one of the, I always like being experimental, one of my experiences, again, as still as a lay person, it was really, really hard to find a place to meditate. You know, There wasn't many retreat centres at all in UK and I didn't really matter what tradition it was, because I know when I was meditating, Whoever that teacher was, teaching these methods of meditation, once my eyes were closed, I could do anything. They couldn't read my mind, I could do whatever I wanted, whatever type of meditation I wanted, and they wouldn't know about it. So I would go to Tibetan monasteries and still do breath meditation. I'd go to Zen monasteries. When I went to this Zen monastery once, it was different. This was in the north of England, Throstle Hole it was called. There was about a dozen of us on this meditation retreat for the weekend. I'd never done Zen meditation before. And you were sitting in a hall. It was only a small hall, very narrow. And, you know, we were facing the wall. And then there was a passage uh, in the middle, facing the wall on either side. And the first thing I learned in Zen meditation, you had to keep your eyes open you weren't allowed to close your eyes. And in Zen meditation, the teacher would come behind you with the Zen stick, walking slowly behind you. Pretty scary because if you were nodding, he'd tap you on the shoulder with the stick and then whack, hit you on the back with a stick. And people said it didn't hurt. It hurt. It's pretty, nice. pretty nice, you must be a masochist. <laughs> <laughs> like a massage, massage. and that's not, not what it sounded like, <laughs> be- because it was a meditator sitting next to me, he was more sleeping than I was, so he got hit by the stick. Whack! That took away all my sleepiness for the whole retreat. (laughs) I didn't dare to be sleeping after that. (laughs) I was afraid. I remember showing some videos of that Zen meditation technique to the prisoners up at Karnat and they were just amazed. They said, Ajahn Bhattu, if you try that on any one of us, (laughs) we'll grab that stick and we'll hit you more hard than you can hit us. So I never tried that. But any, anyhow, <laughs> the most important thing of that Zen retreat, and what made it worthwhile for me, was that keeping your eyes open, just staring at this whitewashed wall. Because my eyes were open, there's nothing much to watch my advantage was I'd already learned some basics of meditation, how to be in the present moment, how to not to be thinking, how to have a silent mind. So you were there just watching this whitewash wall and then the wall vanished. And that was just so cool, it was weird, but so interesting. Again, I was not scared, that was highly unusual. You were watching something, like I'm watching each one of you, it's like the screen goes blank. My eyes were very, very good, there's nothing wrong with my brain. But then I soon worked out afterwards, how come that you can't see anything? I said, it's just, that's just the ghost coming, don't worry. (laughs) <laughs> and then, Sorry, I shouldn't tell ghost jokes. <laughs> you do know about that um, Australian girl who went to visit UK? She went over to UK on a holiday. And what do you do in a country like UK? You go and see the sites, and one of the sites... Australian people, they don't have here in Australia, it's castles. So she went to the, one of these really old castles, 500, 600 years old, and the tour guide took her underneath this castle where the dungeons and torture chambers had been. And it was really spooky. Every time they trod on a floorboard, Uh it would creak every time they opened a door uh, it would really creak and any window, they never had glass in it it was an open window with bars on it when the wind blew through it it was really scary and when Eventually, the guide so sort of went up the stairs to take her into the open air. She was so relieved; she was safe. <laughs> no, leave me. Here. Don't disturb the ghost. This is part of the story. <laughs> it makes it more interesting. Anyway. When they got to the top, the girl, just really stupid, said, have you ever seen a ghost in this castle? And the guide looked her in the eye and said, I've never seen a ghost in this castle. I've never seen a ghost ever since I I started working here. And the woman felt relieved. Until she asked how long you've been working here? Over three hundred years. <laughs> it was a ghost. Anyway. Where was I going with this? Oh yeah, um, Oh yeah, seeing a whitewashed wall disappear. This is just any doctor, anatomist or whatever knows that's just how the senses work. If there's a sound, like the sound of the air con, can you hear it now? After a minute or two, you won't be able to hear it anymore. Because your brain is actually wired only to notice things which change. If There's a constant sound, a background sound, an ambient sound. After a while, you just, it's not important anymore. The brain decides, doesn't have to pay attention, there's more things to do. The feeling in your bottom, sitting on the cushion, or the chair, whatever you're sitting on, can you feel it now? Yeah, of course you do. It's always there, but after a few moments, it will disappear. The brain is very efficient like that. What is constant disappears. And that was such an important realisation, insight for me when I was doing that Zen retreat, because I knew that that's how we get the body to vanish and get in touch with our mind by stillness. You don't need to have a perfectly quiet place for sound to turn off, as long as it's like an ambient sound, doesn't change and after a while you can't hear sound. Physical body feelings, like the ache in your bottom, as long as it doesn't get worse or get better, stays the same, it vanishes smells as long as anyone who had baked beans this morning sits in the back and with no one behind them now i know why people sit in the back <laughs> i sit in the front but my i'm facing the back so if if the smell doesn't change smell turns off taste turns off very easy but with the body again the breath is always changing moving uh, 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 uh. so when we get this breath and we manage to actually to kind of smooth it out so you can see the in breath you see the out breath yes and it becomes very calm and smooth so there's hardly any difference between the in-breath and the out-breath feeling. It becomes even and has the chance to disappear. And that stepping stone in the middle of the stream with the breath, once that disappears, it's kind of like you're free. of the bodily feelings. And many of you have found out, when you don't worry too much about the body, you know, it kind of heals itself. It's very safe. I don't know too much about modern medicine, but I always sometimes read that someone's in an, in an induced coma. They do that so you don't mess around with your body. It allows it to heal. Why some people, you know, where you do have uh, they sort of knock out, and you can. Why you sleep, a good example. And a lot of healing can happen when you sleep. Why? Most people in hospitals, they give you a comfortable bed. Much more comfortable bed than I have in my cave. You've seen the bed I have in my cave. If I had to go in hospital, it would be much more comfortable. Would it? If you have the perception, this is just to rest and relax and heal. And fine, so this is where your five senses have an opportunity to turn off, and you realize a lot of stuff when it turns off. just how irritating that's the word these five senses are just you know no criticism, but when you picked up that book and you opened a page, it was a tiny sound, and that sort of distracted me. I had no choice but to hear it when there's a loud sound. (laughs) You didn't have any choice. You had to hear it, or a flash of light. You don't control your senses as much as you think. But when you can let them go and they all kind of uh, become really, really calm, then you don't hear the sounds. You don't feel the body. I did give a few examples of that, you know, about people who got into a deep meditation, went to hospital, and they could see the uh, EEG and the ECG go flat. I never mentioned this to, I think, only in the interviews. There was one of uh, my disciples over in Sri Lanka. He's a doctor, he works for the, uh, the army or the military over in uh, Sri Lanka. And, he <laughs> okay enough now ghost, <laughs> you made your point. <laughs> and uh, in Sri Lanka he was a, a doctor, but he's also really interested in meditation. And so you know, he started a little meditation group. The last time I saw him, that I was in one of these hotels, um, just resting after, you know, doing some of these conferences, which I ended up doing so often. In one of these conferences in Sri Lanka, you know, the concierge rang my room and said, "Is one of your disciples here to see you, is that okay? Oh yeah, okay, fair enough. So he came up with about Fifteen of his disciples. <laughs> they never told me that he had company. A whole group of them came in. And I didn't mind, because you know they wanted to do a little meditation, but also he wanted to tell me some of the stories which he'd been up to. And one of those was that one of his meditation students had really amazingly deep meditation, and you know, he' get into jhana so easily. He's a layman, but he had brilliant, brilliant meditation. So, anyway, the doctor decided to do an experiment on him. So, when, and he filmed it, videoed it, and it was put on Sri Lankan TV later. When he was meditating, this student, the doctor opened his own eyes, rolled up this man's sleeve, Disinfected his arm, got out a scalpel to do an incision on his arm. He was a doctor, he knew what he was doing, and there's a video of it, this is no exaggeration. The scalpel could not penetrate the arm. Put force in it, really sharp, like a you know, doctor's scalpel, and It couldn't cut him. He was invulnerable to being cut. So the doctor put everything away and when the meditation was finished, then the doctor said what he had done, you know, just being honest and then the doctor asked, do you mind if we do a- another experiment? This time, I'm going to do exactly the same again, but this time can I have your permission to do an incision in your arm? And you know, they'd known each other for years, so had full trust together, so yeah, sure and they videoed it the next time. He got into a deep meditation, the doctor rolled up the sleeve, disinfected the skin, took out the same scalpel, and this time it cut the skin. Not too deeply. If I did that to you, you'd probably scream. It should hurt. But in the meditation, he was just sitting there, just like he was immune from everything and then the doctor just cleaned it up, did a couple of stitches in it and then just put a bandage on it and then this man came out, when he came out of meditation, he had a bandage on his arm, He never knew how it got there, except when he saw the video. It was like a fascinating little experiment, that when you're in meditation, deep meditation, you are invulnerable believe it or not. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know how it works, just know it does work. So, if ever you hear that there is like a tsunami coming to Jhana Grove, or an asteroid is on its way to hit, or there's a big bushfire, or there's any other, some other problem there which is dangerous to your survival, let's get into the meditation. you'll survive, believe it or not. And also be prepared if one of you meditators gets into a deep meditation and sort of your family friends don't know the difference between deep meditation and death and they take you to the mortuary to cremate you. I've seen crematoriums in Singapore, and they put you in this chamber, and then turn down the gas or whatever uh, to such a hot temperature. If you're in a deep meditation, don't worry about yourself; you'll be fine. Be concerned about those poor attendants who, when they open, the <laughs> they say hi. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> That's how it works. It's very rare because very few people do those deep meditations, but some do. So that means it's, you're invulnerable, you're incredibly safe. And I say that because that some of you will have fear when you go into these deep meditations. You're going to places you've never been before. Don't worry. Other people have been there, and they're completely safe. And if You go in those places and afterwards, you come back and say again, thank you. It is incredibly safe and beautiful and energizing. The benefits to you. A lot of healing happens in those deep meditations. Not only that, but there's so much fun. Fun is maybe not the right right word, but pleasure. Ecstasy. Would you like some ecstasy? Would you like to sit down and have the most amazing hour? Uh, usually we say the most amazing hour of your life. But in Buddhism we make it even more powerful. The most amazing hour of your many lifetimes. <laughs> it's incredibly powerful. And I think I mentioned this the first night you may not have not recognised it. But even in the Christian Bible, the phrase in Psalms, be still and know that thou art God. It's a powerful saying. The stillness, samadhi. And that can be what it feels like. Incredible bliss, peace. Come out afterwards, and that's where you're. When you come out after it, in any of these deep states of meditation, your mind is so energized. The five hindrances disappeared. There's no wanting. And if you just won the lottery or something, you don't want it to go to work, do you? I don't want to go to work anyway, even though I haven't won the lottery. But, <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> I mentioned that because yesterday some of the Thais came and they wanted a special blessing I don't know if it's just Thailand or Australia it was the, the lottery day when they picked the numbers please give us a nice blessing I don't know if they won anything think course probably not if they did i would be in really big trouble I'll be in big trouble because they come back again and all their friends please 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 so that's why we don't do that what I remember in Thailand, they always thought that these wandering monks, living very simple and peaceful, though we knew some sort of the numbers for the, the Thai illegal lottery. So I remember once, just sitting down, meditating, minding my own business in a forest in Northeast Thailand, and this lady saw me, and she didn't think I could speak Thai or the local dialect of Thai, the Isan language. So she put in front of me a bottle of Pepsi Cola, a piece of paper, and a pencil. I'd been in Thailand long enough to know exactly what that meant. If you wanted that Pepsi, write a number on the piece of paper with that pencil. (laughs) It was a bribe for trying to give her a lottery number. I never did. Gave her the Pepsi back and the pencil and the. (laughs) The <laughs> number two. Is that the culture of the place? So, anyhow, can it work? Okay, I'll tell you some other stories. <laughs> First of all, okay, yeah, uh, I'll tell you this story. Uh, I don't mind saying the name of this nun. Have anybody of you ever heard of Ayakama? This is one of the stories, which she hasn't put in one of her books. She was teaching a meditation retreat in UK. When the retreat was over, she had to go to, uh, to Heathrow Airport to get her plane back to where she was going, but on the way, needed to have lunch before 12. So, the only place they could find, she had a female driver, Anya, and they found a place, it was a restaurant next to a pub. They had to actually go through the front of the pub but not right into the heart of the pub and just go through the door into the restaurant, that was okay. So they had lunch and when the the attendant was paying for the lunch they had some change left over and it's a waste of time taking a a few pound coins or two pound coins Know, back to where they were going wasn 't really worth exchanging them, so in the front of the pub, there was a slot machine <laughs> this actually happened, <laughs> so the attendant was just trying to get rid of the coins so they just put them in the slot machine and didn 't get anything put them in the slot machine didn 't get anything put the last coin in the slot machine, and that 's when <laughs> A came out and the attendant said, you've got better good karma than I have, you know, you're a nun, so pull the handle. And in one moment of, of heedlessness, the nun pulled the handle. <laughs> she shouldn't have done that. <laughs> no exaggeration, it came out of the jackpot and all this money came out of the machine and fed on her robe. <laughs> That's an offence, we're not supposed to accept any money. <laughs> I wish I was there. <laughs> but anyway, so, <laughs> the bartender, everyone in, the, in the, the pub there went totally quiet. They were really shocked, especially these strangely dressed people just winning the jackpot. And the bartender rang a little bell and announced that, you know, the jackpot has been won and according to their tradition, where they can't make any exceptions, no matter who won it, the winner has to buy a free round of drinks to everybody in the bar. So Ayakama Had to buy gin and tonics and beers and whiskies (laughs) for everybody in the bar. (laughs) It's a good lesson. Never do that when you're a mug or not. (laughs) Second story. These are these are not jokes. That happened. This also happened. There was one. (laughs) One of the gentlemen here, one of the disciples, he's a bit old now, still alive, but can't really make it to the monastery. He got married to a Singapore girl. And after he got married to the Singapore girl, they moved over to Australia, had a family. But every year they would visit Singapore. Uh, What's that uh, other Thai temple? Just towards the... Pali Pali Lai Temple, yeah. They live really close to there. So anyway, that he would go over to to that area of Palilai, uh, to visit the family. He was English and every time he got bored stiff, just listening to his wife, chatting, you know, to her friends and relations. So his brothers-in-law took pity on him, let's take you out somewhere. Where they decided to go was a race track. They took, it and he never goes gambling, but he thought we've got nothing else to do, so he agreed and went to the racetrack. And there are there many racetracks in Singapore? Just one. No, no, no. It was quite a few years ago. Okay, but anyway, they went to the racetrack. But before going to the racetrack, according to Singapore tradition, they went to one of the lucky temples. And when they got to that lucky temple, they didn't tell me where it is, when they went to that lucky temple, it was actually quite dirty. So they all got together and got out the brooms, swept and mopped and cleaned the temple. And that's really important. So when they went to the racetrack and they did their betting on horses, they all <coughs> lost. <laughs> they lost a lot. It didn't work. But, that night, this Ang Mo, <laughs> Ang Mo means a westerner, should really mean red hair, but you know he had, he had actually blonde hair and that night, he dreamt of a horse race and he remembered when he woke up the name of the winning horse this is true. And just you know, out of interest, he looked at the morning edition of the Straits Times, the horse racing. That horse was running, a horse by exactly that name. And so he rang up his brothers-in-law and said, let's go to the racetrack. Last night I dreamt of uh, one of the horses which is, is, right, which is running today. Maybe because you know we did extra good karma by cleaning up that temple. Maybe the spirits in that temple are just so grateful they've given us the name of the horse. And the brothers-in-law replied, "A Singapore spirit would never give the name of winning a horse to an Ang Mo, and not us." (laughs) They refused to go. He went by himself he won a fortune, and that really made his brothers-in-law angry. (laughs) These spirits in Singapore, they look after these foreigners, they never look after the people who look after this place who live here. (laughs) That's a kind of a true story. I don't know why I tell those stories, but it's good fun to listen to. So thank you for listening, Sadhu, (laughs) Sadhu, Sadhu. Anyway, it makes you laugh, and when it makes you laugh, that exercises your respiratory system, and that's a great antidote to SARS, COVID, or anything. Laugh a lot, (laughs) and then your lungs become really strong. Okay, let's do interviews now.